Well, because man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, please open your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. In your notes, or in the, in the bulletin, it says, Christ embodied, which is our series on the doctrine of the local church, but it says creative church discipline. I just want you to know that's a typo. We're not going to be creative with church discipline. <laughs> this morning, this, it's supposed to say corrective church discipline. Um, we are not trying to be creative here with this. Um, we just want to be faithful to God's word in terms of understanding it and applying it to our lives. So, 1 Corinthians 5, I'll read the whole chapter, verses 1 through 13. I'm reading out of the Christian Standard Bible, which is not too different from your own translation. Words might, word order might be different, but the meaning is going to be pretty much right on. Hear then the word of God from 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1. It is widely reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and the kind of sexual immorality that is not even tolerated among the Gentiles. A man is living with his father's wife, and you are inflated with pride, instead of filled with grief, so that he who has committed this act might be removed from your congregation. For though I am absent in body, but present in spirit, I have already decided about the one who has done this thing as though I were present. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, with my spirit, and with the power of our Lord Jesus, turn that one over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast permeates the whole batch of dough? Clean out the old yeast so that you may be a new batch. You are indeed unleavened, for Christ our Passover has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us observe the feast, not with old yeast, or with the yeast of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in a letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Verse 10. I did not mean the immoral people of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Otherwise, you would have to leave the world. But now I am writing you not to associate with anyone who claims to be a believer who is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or verbally abusive, a drunkard or a swindler. Do not even eat with such a person. For what business is it of mine to judge outsiders? Don't you judge those who are inside? But God judges outsiders. Put away the evil person from among yourselves. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we thank you that you speak to us in the very reading of your word. It is an act of worship. What a joy, Lord, to, to know that you are here in our midst, that you are in this world today, that you are speaking clearly and powerfully and authoritatively, and in a way that gives life to your people. Father, we pray that that's what you would do this morning, that you would give life to us in your ways. Turn our eyes from looking at empty things. Give us life in your ways. Open our eyes to see wonderful things here in your word. And with a hard topic like this, help us to see the beauty and glory of your love, the majesty of your grace, the strength of your justice and your care for every single one 
of the members of every single local church that is the body of Christ. So, Father, give us wisdom in these things. Apart from your Holy Spirit, we can do nothing. So we ask now that he would help us here, that he would help the children's teachers as well, that your word would be proclaimed, that Christ would be exalted, that faith would be given and strengthened, and that in the end you would be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, in talking about the subject of church discipline, there are two main texts you can go to. You can go to 1 Corinthians 5, which is the longest text in the Bible on the topic, or you can go to Matthew 18, verses 15 to 20. Now, we decided on 1 Corinthians 5. I decided on 1 Corinthians 5. But let me summarize just briefly Matthew 18, 15 to 20, just by way of introduction. In Matthew chapter 18, verse 15, Jesus says that if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault in private, just between the two of you. And if that brother or sister listens to you, you have won your brother. You have gained your brother. But if they don't listen, if they don't repent, then take two or three witnesses with you. That doesn't mean they have to have witnessed the crime or witnessed the sin. They just need to witness the conversation. So two or three witnesses come. They witness the conversation. They say that, yeah, you know, that's a sin. You need to repent. If the person refuses to repent, Jesus says, then tell it to the church. Matthew eighteen seventeen. That's speaking of the local church, not the universal church, the local church. Tell it to the local church. And if he doesn't listen to the church, then let him be to you like an unbeliever or a tax collector. So there's four steps to church discipline there in Matthew 18. First, one-on-one, then two or three, and then the whole church telling the person to repent, and then excommunication or exclusion where you put them out of the church. But in all four steps, what is the goal? Repentance. Repentance restoration. The goal is to have them enjoy the Lord Jesus in all of his glory and in all of his holiness. That's always the goal from step one to step four. The goal is not to get to step four. The goal is to restore and recover the sinning brother or sister who is not repenting. Now, our bylaws teach this in our church, in our church bylaws on section 5.04. We have a whole section here on church discipline. I was thinking about reading the whole thing, but it might take, you know, maybe four or five minutes and and that might be too long. But um, it says here, let me just read to you a part of it. It says, should some serious condition exist, which would cause a member to become a liability to the cause of Christ or to the welfare of the church, the pastor and the deacons or a committee elected by the church will take every reasonable measure to resolve the problem in accordance with Matthew 18, 15 through 20. If the member should fail to correct the problem despite the counsel of the pastor and deacons or a committee, the church may, by a majority vote in a regular or special business meeting, declare the member to be, quote, out of fellowship with the church. The next section says, should a member remain out of fellowship with the church for at least 60 days without correcting the problem, the church may exclude the member, declaring him no longer in the membership of the church. Such action shall require a two-thirds vote of those active members present and voting in a regular or special business meeting. The member in question shall receive at least seven days' notice of the business meeting where such action will be considered. And there's two other paragraphs with that, but the point here is that not only is it in the Bible, it is in our bylaws. No church really that believes in the Bible rejects church discipline. 
No church does. I've been reading more than, than, I, um, than I'd love to share here this morning. I was struggling with how much I've been learning this week and how much can I actually share in 40 minutes or 45 minutes. But um, no ch- one of the things that, that struck me as I was reading on the history of church discipline is that no church has ever said we will not do this. It is not rejected, it's abandoned. It's neglected. But no church has said, we see this in the Bible and we hate it. And we won't do it. That's not the case. Most people say, yeah, yeah, it's there. We should do it. But, in, but then they kind of put it off to the side and then it never actually gets practiced in a church's life, in, in, in church's lives when it falls to the side. So if we are to understand how we as a local church are to embody Jesus Christ, we are the body of Christ, then we need to understand what Jesus teaches us here through Paul about church discipline. So here's the main idea. I think God wants you this morning, he wants us to be compelled by restoration and purity to put away the evil person from among ourselves. Now, praise God, there's no one I have in mind here. So I don't, I'm not saying that with anyone here in mind. I'm just saying that's what the, that's what the passage is talking about. Okay, but the, the, So the point of this passage is he wants that church at Corinth to be so compelled by the restoration of this person and by the purity of the church that they will want to obey God in taking accountability and responsibility in putting out the unrepentant professing believer from their midst. Now, he says this in three ways. So those are the three points for the sermon this morning. You see that there in your notes. Number one, remove the immoral person from your church, verses one through five. Verses six through eight, cleanse yourselves as a church. Verses uh, nine through 13, disassociate yourself from the unrepentant professing Christian. Those are three ways of saying the same thing. Remove him from your midst, cleanse yourselves as a church body, as a church family, and disassociate from the unrepentant professing believer. Just a side note, I will say this again at the end of the sermon, but I'll say it now. Um, Us teaching on this doesn't mean our church is going to start practicing this tonight. Okay? This is not, our church isn't ready for it in a lot of ways. And so, um, but, but we still need to be thinking about it and praying about it and letting it sit in, in our hearts and minds. So I'm not um, pushing the church to say, hey, we need to do this tonight or on our next business meeting or whatever the case. But we still need to understand what God's word says if we're going to understand what a local church is. So let's go to number one. Remove the immoral man from your church. What is the situation here? Look at verse one. It is widely reported that there is sexual immorality among you and the kind of sexual, sexual immorality... That is not even tolerated among the Gentiles. A man is living with his father's wife. So here's a Corinthian church believing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And there is a member in the church who is sexually immoral. Specifically, he is is involved with his dad's legal wife. His stepmom, presumably here. And in verse 2, it says... um, Or it says in verse 1 that not even the Gentiles, not even non-Christians tolerate this kind of action. In Roman law, this was illegal. It was illegal even in Roman law to to be involved with your your step-parent. And so the punishment in Roman law was losing of property, exile on an island, and even losing social status. It's not just Roman law that prohibited it. Even Old Testament, Old Covenant law, in Leviticus 18.18, in Deuteronomy 22, verse 30, you have the same thing here. A man is not to lay with his father's wife. And here you have someone doing that 
with the full knowledge of the whole congregation, and yet the church is inflated, it says, look at verse 2, they're inflated with what? With pride. What are they proud about? Have you ever thought about that? What what would they be proud about? You know, um, it doesn't say, but I have. There's two guesses I have. One guess might be maybe this was a prominent member in society who's a member of your church, with the presidential elections going on. What you know, if we were a church on Washington on, on Capitol Hill in Washington D.C., what if one of the members of your church was the president of the United States, and he was a member of your church? You know, let's just go back to the late 90s when Bill Clinton was a, a member. What if he was a member of your church and yet he was caught in immorality? The, ch- the church might just be so proud that they have the president as one of the members of their church that they wouldn't want to do anything to excommunicate him because we got the president as a member of our church. What kind of status does that show our church? Maybe that was one of the ways the church was inflated with pride. That's one guess. Here's another guess. Maybe the church was inflated with pride because this church was so filled with grace and not with law. They were so filled with love and tolerance and not self-righteous religious bigotry that they were not holier than thou. They weren't a bunch of Pharisees. So they might say, look at us. Our church is not, we're not Pharisees. We're not a judgmental church. We tolerate that stuff. Christ died for it. And we are a church that can tolerate even those things. You can be a member of our church in good standing, no matter what you do, because God's grace is greater than our sin. And you could you could almost feel the um, the proud the pride the arrogance of wow look at how great we are as a church we got a prominent member or we're so filled with grace. And instead, what does Paul want them to be? In verse two, instead of being inflated with pride, what should they be? Mourning. Filled with grief. They should be filled with grief such to the point that they're willing to actually remove this person in verse 2 so that he who has committed this act might be removed from you, from among you, from your congregation. Paul wants them to grieve as if it's their own sin. This is what keeps a church from being self-righteous. Grief. Godly grief. A self-righteous judgmental church is a church that looks down on other people's sin with no grief in their own heart about the fact that they too are sinners and they too could fall into that sin were it not for the grace of God. And so Paul says, he's about to ask them to do something very strongly three times in this passage at least to remove this person, but it all has to come from a heart of grief, a heart of mourning, a heart of sadness. That this is your brother or sister in Christ who refuses to repent from their sin in such a bold-faced sin. And so the church, one of the ways, one of the marks of a Christian who will not be self-righteous is that they mourn every time they hear about other people's sins. They don't look down with anger. They don't look down with, oh, look at that horrible church. Or look at that horrible Christian. What are they doing? No, they're marked by grief. And that's what Paul wants. He wants a grief that overwhelms you because it's coming from love as if you're excommunicating your own child, that kind of grief, where you love them and yet you know this is the right thing to do for God's glory, for that person's good, and even for the church. And so he gives us three reasons here in the in point number one here. Remove the immoral man from among you. Be so filled with grief that you remove him. Why? 
Why should we do this? Three reasons. Let's just go through these briefly. Look at verse 3. For though I am absent, Paul says, in body, I'm not in Corinth, but I'm present in spirit. I have already decided about the one who has done this thing as though I were present. So firstly, you guys need to remove this man because even though I'm not there, I've already made a what? Decision. I've already made a judgment. Now this shows not the audacity of Paul or the omniscience of Paul. It shows the obviousness of the sin. Paul's not even in the city. He has enough information in another town to pronounce judgment all the way in Corinth. That's how obvious it is that this man should be removed. And yet they haven't removed him. And so that's the first reason why you need to do it, because it is so obvious that the church planter who planted your church years ago, six years ago or so, can see even from miles away that this man must be removed. That's reason number one, because Paul has already made that judgment. Reason number two, who's present? Look at verse four. When you are assembled in the name of who? Of our Lord Jesus. With my spirit and with the power of the Lord Jesus. So why should you do this? Who's present when your church is assembled? Jesus is present. When two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of them. Right? Do you know where that is? Matthew 18 what? Matthew 18 20. When two or three, we use that for prayer meeting verses. You get two or three people. You don't want to be discouraged that there's only a few people. And so you quote Matthew 18 20. Ah, in our prayer meeting, Jesus is here. That's not a bad application, I suppose, of the verse. But look at the context. Matthew 18, 20 is three verses after Matthew 18, 17, which is about what? Church discipline. Jesus is saying that when the church confronts a sinner who refuses to repent, it takes two or three and then takes the whole church. And when they excommunicate in the whole process, who's there with them? Christ is with them. Jesus is guiding them. Jesus is leading them. And so when Paul is speaking here, he's just picking up what Jesus said in Matthew 18, verse 20. That when the church removes someone from their midst, it's not a human action alone. It is a divine action with Jesus Christ himself present. That's why you need to carry through. Third reason why you need to carry through with this, look at verse 5. So when Jesus is present, turn that one over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Now, before I tell you the third reason here, and the main reason of this first section of why they're to do this, let's just look at what it means, what Paul's asking them to do in verse 5. He wants them to turn this man over to who? To Satan. Wow. Turn this man over to Satan. What does that mean? Well, for the what? For the destruction of the? The destruction of the flesh. So, what does it mean to hand someone over to Satan? Well, there are only two realms with which you, within which you can exist in our world. In the realm of Christ or the realm of Satan. And where do you see the realm of Christ today in this world? In the local church. church. So if you're not part of the community of the church, if you're not a member of the local church, then you are outside of the realm of the church and you are under the realm of Satan. Under the realm of church, you have protection. You have God's grace flowing from brother and sister to brother and sister. You have the preaching of the word. You have baptism and the Lord's Supper. You have confrontation. You have fellowship. You have confession of sin. You have evangelism. You have meeting each other's needs. You have the shared life of the church family. 
And when you are cut off from that church family, when you are not part of a church family, you are literally handed over to Satan. There is no protection for your sin, humanly speaking. There is no body of Christ taking full responsibility for your discipleship, the way church membership is supposed to be. And therefore, what Paul wants this man, what, this, what, what he wants this church to do is hand this man over to Satan to remove the hand of protection that the local church gives to this man spiritually. No longer consider this person a member of your church. No longer allowed to take the Lord's Supper. That doesn't mean they can't attend a church in practicality. They should. If, you ever ex- if we ever excommunicate someone from this church, we should, under normal circumstances, want them to, to attend, under normal circumstances. Because faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God, or hearing the word of Christ. Uh, King James Version's word of God. But yeah, hearing the word of Christ. And if you're going to hear the word of Christ, being at the church gathering where it's preached, and then where there's conversation about it, and people are praying for you, and people love you, there's a call to repentance every time you gather with the church, and that's a good thing. And so hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of his what? Flesh. What does that mean? Does Paul want this man's body to be destroyed physically? Now, some people think that's what it means. I don't think that's what it means here in the text. I think it means more of, if you look at Second or 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1, he talks about people who are of the flesh and people who are of the spirit. So flesh is that indwelling sin in your life. That, um, you know, that the old man, if you read Romans 7. And so Paul wants you, he wants you, the church at Corinth, to deliver this man over to Satan so that the indwelling sin in his life would be what? Destroyed. Let him taste the emptiness of his sin. Let him feel the withdrawal of real Christian love. And let him find love in the people of the world, which is ultimately going to be self Seeking, self-centered. Let him taste the emptiness of the sin. Let him feel the longing for Christ in the people of Christ until he wants to repent. Remove the person from among you. Hand this man over to Satan. Now why? Does Paul want this person to be destroyed ultimately? Why why for the destruction of the flesh in verse 5? So that what? It's very important. So that his spirit may be what? Saved at the day of the Lord, in the day of the Lord. In the final judgment, do you want this person saved or condemned? Saved. Saved. If you want this person saved, then kick him out. That's the logic here. Hand him over to Satan if you want to save him. The only way you're going to wake him up now is by handing him over, by removing him from the church. That is love. Some people might say, how is this loving? You're going to hand someone over to Satan that's loving? Yes, I mean, according to Paul. Because if you love somebody, you want them to finally be saved. You don't want them in hell. You don't want them sitting in your church in good standing for 30 years and then die and go to hell. Right? Better to remove them for 10 or 15 years or 10 or 15 months. And then they repent. And then when they die, they go to heaven. Isn't that love? Right? Love is not just... Not having any awkwardness in the church, because you can't actually avoid that. Love is wanting their final salvation, which means you need to hand them over to Satan. Now, does this mean that if you're handed over to Satan, that's how you pay for your sins and that's how you get saved? In other words, you get to earn your salvation by dealing with Satan for a little bit? 
No. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. We are not saying that you pay for your sinful debt by excommunication. That's not what Paul's saying. You're saved by grace through faith in Christ. But the way you get faith, the way you get connected to Christ is by faith. And the flip side of faith is, if faith is turning to God, it's also turning from sin and Satan, right? That's what repentance is. Repentance and faith are two sides of the same coin. Repentance is turning from sin and self-righteousness. And faith is turning to Jesus. You can't be two-faced. You can't face Jesus and sin at the same time. You have to face one and repent from the other. You repent from Jesus and you face sin. Or you repent from sin and you face Jesus. But you can't do both. And this is, what, this is why you excommunicate. Because when you do it, hopefully the person will turn to repentance and faith. And faith connects you to who? Jesus. And who's accepted before God? Jesus is. And when you trust in Christ, that's faith and that's how you get saved. And when someone is refusing to follow Jesus with their lives, they are breaking their faith and they might show that they never really do believe in Jesus. Maybe they do, maybe they don't. You'll find out in their response to the excommunication. So here's the good news. This sounds like bad news. This sounds harsh, but this is actually good news. The good news is every sinner inside and outside the church, can be restored to God. Isn't that good news for you sinners? Anyone a sinner here? Raise your hand if you're a sinner here. Okay? All of us are sinners here. Isn't it good news that there's grace that could overcome our sin? That there's grace that could restore us? You could even sleep with your father's wife and still be restored to Christ? It's true. You can be a murderer of Christians like the Apostle Paul who killed Christians. He was the chief of sinners and he said, I was the worst of sinners. Um, it, the statement is true. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And I was the chief of them. There is good news for sinners here in the church. Any sinner in this church can be forgiven. Any sinner in this church can be restored as they repent from their sins and trust in Jesus Christ. So if you're not a Christian, here's the good news for you this morning. Repent from your sins and trust in Jesus Christ and you can be forgiven. Here's the good news for sinning Christians. Repent from your sins and trust in Jesus Christ afresh and enjoy your communion with him and your communion with the saints. It's a good thing to be with the people of God. So the main reason why you should remove this person from among you is for his final salvation. It's for restoration. Let's go to number two, verses six through eight. So um, the first thing is remove the man. Verses six through eight, we see cleanse yourselves. Cleanse yourselves. Why should we cleanse ourselves? Look at verse six. Verse 7 says, clean out the old yeast. So there's the command in verse 7. Cleanse yourself. Clean out the yeast from the church. Why? Why should we clean ourselves? Look at verse 6. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast permeates the whole what? The whole batch of dough. All the bread. So in other words, why should you clean yourself, church? Because if you don't, what happens to the yeast? It what? It spreads. And the yeast here is an analogy for what? Sin and evil. If you do not clean yourselves as a church, if you do not remove the unrepentant sinner, guess what happens to the sin? It doesn't stay in his own life alone. It spreads to you. It spreads to me. It spreads to the leadership. It spreads to the children. It spreads throughout the church. You can't stop it. 
You can't compartmentalize it. You can't control it. God never gave you that power. He never gave the church that power. If you do not deal with it and cleanse yourselves, the evil will inevitably, for sure, spread across the church. So if there's evil in the church and you don't remove it, it's now spreading across the whole church family. That's the first reason why you need to cleanse yourself. Second reason is in verse, verse 7. Look at verse 7. Clean out the old yeast so that you may be a what? So that you may be what? A new batch. A new batch. So clean out the old yeast so that you can be a new batch. It's just like saying put off the old man and put on the, the new man, right? That's all over Paul's writings. So he's saying this as a church family. Clean out the old so that you guys as a church, your church family, can be a new batch. Now, why should you want to be a new batch? Look at verse 7. You are indeed unleavened. You're already that new batch. You're already unleavened bread is bread without yeast. For Christ, our Passover has been sacrificed. So why, second reason why you need to cleanse yourselves? Because you're already new. So he says, cleanse yourself so that you can be new. But guess what? In verse 7, he says, you're already new. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, a new creature. First or second Corinthians five seventeen. If you're a new creation, does that mean you don't have to put on the new man? No. Because you're a new creation, guess what you get to do? Put on the new man and put off the old man. That's speaking of you individually. Now we're speaking of you corporately. If you are the church of Jesus Christ, you are a new, unleavened, pure, clear, cleansed, and clean batch of the bread of Christ. Unleavened. No evil. Therefore, because that's what you already are, (coughs) cleanse yourselves as a church family. That's what you already are. To be unleavened means to have no yeast. To have no evil, to be pure, to be clean, to be set apart, to be sanctified. Or to use the words of 1 Corinthians 6.11, you were washed, sanctified, and justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God. 1 Corinthians 6.11, that's who you are, church. You're already clean. So clean yourselves. Now what's behind the picture of being unleavened? For this, we need to go back to Exodus chapter 12. So keep your finger here um, in 1 Corinthians 5 and go to Exodus chapter 12 with me. Let's get this idea of unleavened here. Exodus 12, if you don't, if you, it's the second book in your Bible near the very front. If you can't make it there, don't worry. Just follow along with your eyes. I'll read it and faith comes by hearing. So you could listen. Exodus 12, 14 says this. This is speaking of the Passover meal and the feast of unleavened bread. Exodus 12, 14. <coughs> this, is the, this, this day, this is Israel about to leave Egypt as slaves. This day is to be a memorial for you and you must celebrate it as a festival to Yahweh. You are to celebrate it throughout your generations as a perfect statute. Look at verse 15. You must eat what kind of bread? Unleavened bread for seven days. On the first day, you must remove yeast from your houses. Whoever eats what is leavened from the first day to the seventh day must be what? Cut off from Israel. Then go back, go down to verse 19. Look at verse 19. Yeast must not be found in your houses for seven days. If anyone eats something leavened, that person, whether a foreign resident or native of the land, must be what? (coughs) Must be cut off. From the community of Israel. Do not eat anything unleavened. 
eat unleavened bread in all your homes. Very clear. If you eat unleavened bread, what's the consequence? Being cut off from Israel. Cut off from the covenant people of God. And that's why Paul is saying, guess what? You're the unleavened bread. You're no longer the old bread with the yeast. You are the unleavened bread. You're now pure and clean and sanctified and washed. Why? Go back to First Corinthians. Now, keep your finger in Exodus 12. Go back to First Corinthians 5, just to answer this question. <clears throat> look at verse 7. Why are you the unleavened bread? In verse 7. I want you to look at it in your Bible. I don't want to give you the answer until you see it in the text for yourself. Why are you the unleavened bread? In verse 7. The end of verse 7. For what? Christ what? Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed. Why are you now clean? Because Christ, the Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. In Exodus 12, if you want to turn back there, in verse 5, it says you must have, this is what you need to do when you have the Feast of Unleavened Bread. This is the Passover. Verse 5, you must have an unblemished animal, a year-old male. You must take it from either sheep or the goats. You are to keep it until the 14th day of the month. Then the whole assembly of the community of Israel will slaughter the animals at twilight. You must take the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses where they may eat them. So that's what you do. You kill this lamb. You put the blood on the doorpost, and then verse 12, this is what God's going to do. I'm going to pass through the land of Egypt on that night and strike every firstborn male in the land of Egypt. And you guys are in the land of Egypt. And I'll strike, born, strike down every firstborn male, both man and beast. I am Yahweh. I will execute judgments against all the gods of Egypt. The blood on the houses where you are staying will be a distinguishing mark for you. When I see the blood, I will what? Pass over you. No plague will be among you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. How are you washed and sanctified and accepted before God? A Passover lamb was slain for you. So you don't have to die. And so here's John the Baptist doing his baptisms in the Jordan River. All of a sudden he sees his cousin and says, Behold, the Lamb of God who what? Takes away the sins of the world. The Passover lamb, Jesus Christ, has come to die for our sins as the Lamb of God and take away our sins. Amen. That's the gospel. And that's why you're clean, church. That's why you need to cleanse yourselves. That's why you can't tolerate this in your midst. Because Christ died for you. He took away your sin and its consequences. He made you clean and pure and washed and sanctified and justified. Therefore, we are to be holy. Praise God for the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. That Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead to save sinners and to sanctify them, set them apart as clean, pure, unleavened bread. Amen. And so here Paul in 1 Corinthians 5 is saying, cleanse yourselves because of the cross. And then one more reason why to cleanse yourself. Verse 8. Therefore, let us observe the feast. Not with old yeast or with the yeast of malice and evil. So don't observe the feast with evil, but with unleavened bread of sincerity and truth in purity. So why are, you to, why are you to cleanse yourselves? What does Paul want us to do in verse 8? Observe the feast. That's sort of a weak translation. Does anyone have a different translation? Uh, what verse? Verse 8. Verse 8, this is NASB. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast. Celebrate the feast. That's what I like. Celebrate the feast. Observe the feast sounds kind of 
boring, perhaps. Oh, let's observe the feast. It's not just talking about observing the feast. It's what? It's a celebration. Why should you cleanse yourselves? Because we're celebrating who? Jesus Christ. We're celebrating our salvation from sin. You know, that's why God created the world, right? I've said this to you before. Why did God create the whole universe? Because the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were celebrating each other with such joy and love and passion and holiness and seeing each other's glory that God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit overflowed in creating the universe. God didn't create the universe because He was needy. God created the universe out of the overflow of His joy. And He created the universe to create a humanity, to save a people from this humanity, to be invited into the Trinitarian celebration forever and ever and ever. God is a celebrating God. God is a happy God. God is a joyful God. God is so joyful, He's the center of the party, that He's that kind of center of the party person who gets everyone having a good time. He's inviting people in. He's sending His Son to die for them, to save them so that they could enter into the party to celebrate God's glory forever and ever and ever on the new earth with new bodies for all eternity. And so that's what we're made for, to celebrate God. But we don't have to wait until Christ comes again. We celebrate now. We celebrate the goodness of God now. We celebrate our salvation now. We celebrate the forgiveness of our sins now. We celebrate the restoration of of a repentant brother who is strayed and has been restored. We celebrate it now. We take the Lord's Supper now. And we remember the death of Christ. We look forward to the coming. The Lord's Supper is not to be gloomy. I know it could be somber. And we need to deal with our sin respectfully. We need to be reverent. But it is joyful. The Lord's Supper is a celebration of the death and resurrection of Christ. His body broken for us. His blood spilled for us, giving us a covenant so that we are united with God forever. It's a celebration. And that's why you are to cleanse yourselves. You cannot celebrate the glory and holiness and joy of God when you're tolerating sin in your midst. Impossible. Impossible. So if you're going to be a joyful, celebrant church then you need to cleanse yourselves from the leaven and the yeast amongst yourselves. That's Paul's point. That's number two. So remove the immoral man from your church. Number two, cleanse yourselves because you're already made clean in Christ. And number three, disassociate from unrepentant professors. Verses 9 through 13. Now the reasoning here is not as long. and there's um, So let me just go through this briefly and then we'll spend our last moments on verse 13. So here's what Paul wrote in verse 9. I wrote to you in a letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. So Paul wrote zero Corinthians, if you like. This is one Corinthians. There was another letter to the Corinthians before this letter. And in it he said, don't associate with sexually immoral people. Apparently, this church misunderstood. Maybe they thought, is Paul saying that we need to not associate with anyone? And so they didn't get it. So here's Paul's clarification, verse 10. I did not mean in that first letter, the immoral people of this world or the greedy, and swindlers, or idolaters. Otherwise, you would have to leave the world. I'm not saying separate from the world, disassociate from the world, don't have any friends in the world. How can you share the gospel with your neighbors if you don't love your neighbor as you love your self? If you're not their friends, if you don't get to know their stories, if you don't care for them and they don't feel your love, how can you share the gospel with them? How can the church be the body of light in, in the city? They can't. Of course you have to associate with them. That's not what I'm talking about. Here's what I'm talking about in verse 11. 
I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who claims to be a believer who is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or verbally abusive, a drunkard, a swindler. Don't even eat with such a person. Wow. So who are we to disassociate from? Professing believers who are unrepentant in their sin. Sexual morality, greed, idolatry, verbally abusive, a drunkard, or a swindler. Disassociate from them if they are not repentant. And they are saying that they are a what? Christian. If they're saying they're not a Christian, different story. If they're saying they're a Christian, you need to disassociate with them. And then verse 11 says, don't even do what with them? Eat with them. Now, some people take that as just the Lord's Supper, which I don't think that's just what it is. I mean, you could say, don't take the Lord's Supper with them or don't have the Lord's table with them or don't break bread with them, even use the code language of the Lord's Supper. But he says, don't even eat with such a person. Why? Is Paul wanting to be mean? No. What's the point here? What do you want them to do in the final day? Repent so that they could be what? Saved. We are not playing games with church discipline. We are after the salvation of souls. And when you eat with them, and when you associate with them, while they are unrepentant in their sin, you make light of their sin. You make light of their predicament. You make light of the church's call to repentance. And you muffle the call to repentance. And if they don't repent... Because of your associating with them in disobedience to this verse. Because of your eating with them in disobedience to this verse. Part of the blood is on your hands. So Paul's very clear here. Your priority, priority number one to any professing Christian is live like a Christian in repentance and faith. And if you won't, then the church as a church will disassociate from you and will not eat with you. Not because we don't want to. There's nothing we'd rather do than eat with you. But we cannot without making light of your sin and your lack of repentance while you at the same time profess, I'm a Christian. Because five years ago or ten years ago, I prayed a prayer. Not good enough. Not, 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 not to Paul. Not here. Repentance and faith. Live faith is what's required. Faith without works is? Dead. dead. Now why? why? Why such an extreme stance, Paul? He gives us three reasons, and they're short in verses 12 and 13. Reason number one, what business is it of mine to judge what? Outsiders. In other words, Christians and the churches do not judge outsiders. Who judges outsiders? God does, right? Well, yeah, we hand them over to Satan, but yeah, God does. And that's, that's, the next, that's in verse 13. God judges outsiders. So, so why should we disassociate from unrepentant sinners in the church? Because we are not called to judge outsiders. That's God's job and so we are to focus on we're, who are we responsible for our own house right for our, our own family and that's what verse 12b says don't you judge those who are inside what does paul assume the answer to that is yes or no are we to judge those who are inside yes or no yes, yes. And that's what the whole passage is about right judge those who are inside he wants us to judge fellow christians who have publicly professed that they are Christians. How do we publicly profess we're Christians? Baptism, church membership, and communion. Those are all public ways of professing, biblical public ways of professing that you are a Christian. Now someone might object and say, hold on, time out, PJ. 
Let's, let's bring Jesus in here. Matthew 7, 1, doesn't Jesus say, do not judge lest ye be judged? And we say, yes, and amen. We don't want to pick one Bible verse over another. So that's great. Let's think about it. Don't, I'll read Matthew 7, 1 through 5 for you. Do not judge so that you won't be judged. But now let's get the whole paragraph. For with the judgment you used, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but don't notice the what? Log in your own eye. How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye. And look, there's a log in your eye. Hypocrite. First, take the log out of your eye. And then you will see clearly to do what? Take the speck out of your brother's eye. So, what Jesus is against here is hypocrisy, self-righteousness, judgmentalism, where there's no grief over your own sin, there's no self-examination, there's no taking the log out of your own eye first before you look at the speck in your brother's eye. But Jesus doesn't just say, take the log out of your own eye and leave that guy alone. Is that what he says? No. Take the log out of your own eye first, then what? Take the speck out of your brother's eye. To take the speck out of your brother's eye is to say, hey brother, there's a speck in your eye. I'm making a judgment call here. There's a speck in your eye. There's sin in your life that you need to repent from. So even in Matthew 7, Jesus is not saying no judgment ever. He's saying no judgmentalism. No self-righteous hypocrisy. No harsh, unspiritual approaching others to correct and restore them. Now, Greg Wills, a professor at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, he wrote a great chapter on a historical analysis of church discipline. I really enjoyed it. But he, tell, he quotes Victor Masters, who wrote in the Baptist Courier in 1902 as to why Baptists abandoned discipline. Let me read to you. Here's a little history paragraph for you. Here's what he says. Sentimentality is an enemy of church discipline. Sentimentality is the love of man divorced from the love of truth. Get that? Love of man divorced from the love of truth. Under the specious guise of broadened sympathies, it cloaks a big lot of hypocrisy and moral decay. The church sentimentalist is so kind to his fellow church member that he is willing to ignore the plain instruction of the book of his faith rather than bring him to account for unchristian conduct. Judge not that ye be not judged, he quotes. But he forgets to quote 1 Corinthians 5, 12 and 13. Do not ye judge them that are within, whereas them that are without God judgeth. Greg, Gregory Wills, professor of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, continues. He says, Masters was on target. Worldly notions of civility and niceness have displaced scriptural notions of Christian love and godliness. You hear that? Worldly notions of civility and niceness have displaced scriptural notions of Christian love and godliness. Love confronts sin. Because sin is a cancer in our lives. And it destroys us. It destroys our souls. It is not loving to ignore sins in others when God is calling us to restore them. So, so that's why we are to judge in, in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 11, 12, and 13. God judges outsiders. We judge those who are inside. Now, what if a judge, on, you know, we're looking for a Supreme Court justice now, right? In the, in our, uh, we have one vacancy in our Supreme Court in America. 
What if a judge refuses to do their job? A judge in Bellflower. What if a jury refused to do its job of seeking justice in a crime? What would happen to our society? It would crumble, right? There'd be a breakdown. Our justice system would be broken and our citizens would be vulnerable, right? Now, what if a church refuses to do its job? What if a church refuses to judge the unrepentant Christian professor? What, what happens? It harms the unrepentant Christian professor. It harms the faithful Christians in the church. It harms the non-Christians outside the church who are confused on what Christianity is. And it belittles the glory of God. A judge in Bellflower needs to do his job. A jury needs to do their job. A church needs to do its job. They must not be held, they must not be found irresponsible on this point and expect everyone to flourish in their Christian lives. It's not going to happen. So to conclude, verse 13, last verse, conclusion here. God judges outsiders, and so here's the command one more time. What does it say? Put away the evil person from what? Among yourselves. Now this phrase, put away the evil person from among, among yourselves, it's quoted six times in Deuteronomy. Beginning in Deuteronomy 17, it talks about different sins, and it says, someone's guilty of idolatry, take him out and stone him. First, you need to investigate it thoroughly, then you take him out and stone him, put away the evil person from among you. Someone's caught in adultery or sleeping with his father's wife, Deuteronomy 22, put the person, evil person away from among you. Someone's caught kidnapping and stealing people. Execute the person. Put away the evil person from among you. Another person in Deuteronomy is, is testifying a false witness and accusing another, another covenant community member that they're guilty of a crime that they're not guilty of. So you have a malicious, lying witness. What do you do? It says, put the, pers- put the evil person away from among you. Six times in Deuteronomy. The covenant community is to put away the evil person from among you because they are the people of God. They're old covenant Israel. They were saved out of Egypt, out of slavery, to display the glory of God to all the nations. That's what Israel was supposed to do. And the only way they would do it is by keeping purity and putting away the evil person from among them. Purging the evil from among them. Corporate identity. We are the people of God, right? We are the family of the Father. We are the body of Christ. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We are a church where everyone encounters Jesus. That's what we want to be. A church where everyone encounters Jesus. Excommunication and exclusion of an unrepentant sinner works to do several things. It works to restore the unrepentant sinner through a powerful call to repentance. It works to clean our church family so that we are pure and holy in our celebration of Christ's death and resurrection. It works to call all of us to examine our own lives and take the logs out of our own eyes and deal with sin. It clarifies to the non-Christians what a true Christian is and who Jesus is. And most of all, it displays the love, mercy, forgiveness, and holiness of Jesus Christ. And therefore, it glorifies God. Like I said in the beginning, our church is not ready to practice it at this point. But we need to begin thinking through what the Bible says. And we do practice step one and step two. Confront each other privately. Just two weeks ago, before I got sick, one of my brothers in this church sent me an email confronting me on my sin. Praise the Lord. What a dear brother. What a gift to have a brother who will love me enough to go to me directly and not go to anyone else and say, PJ, I think you might be sinning in this area of your life. 
Think about it. What a, what a gift. What, what 1 Corinthians 5 action, you know, Matthew 18 action in our church. We need to do this. We get to do this. And it is happening. I've experienced it, like I said, two weeks ago. There's that first level and two or three confrontation. And that's where we're going to start in this church, is to keep growing in our health there so that we can encounter Jesus. Our next step as a church family is to adopt an updated church covenant. We do have an exceptional business meeting in two weeks to consider that specific thing is of adopting an updated church covenant so that we can know our responsibilities to one another as a church, our responsibilities to personal holiness, and our responsibility for growth and accountability. And along with that, we also need to pare down our church membership role to make sure it's accurately reflecting those who are fully responsible and committed to one another's discipleship in this church. So, remove the immoral man from among you, cleanse yourselves, disassociate from unrepentant professing Christians for the glory of God, for the good of the church, and for the restoration of the sinner. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these words. Thank you for 1 Corinthians 5. Thank you for your kindness to us. You don't want sin to dominate our lives. And it, it, it's like a leech. It's, it's in me. It's in all of us here. And it's, it's attacking us every moment of every day. Thank you that we don't have to walk this Christian life alone. Thank you for a church family where we can be responsible for one another's discipleship, to help each other see blind spots, to encourage each other, to confront each other, to restore one another, to make Christ known to the lost together. We pray, Father, that as we think about this word, that you would hide it in our hearts, that we would not sin against you. Grow us, Father, in breaking sentimentality. Grow us in breaking... a worldly civility and a worldly niceness that prevents us from true Christian love and restoration and fighting sin together. Help us to realize, Father, in this church that we are not enemies. We're partners helping each other fight sin to honor you. Thank you, Father, again for our church family. We pray that we would walk in these ways. Please continue to work in us through your word and your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.